Oh, you might like to keep your Bibles open. Uh, when you first became a follower of Jesus, um, maybe recently, maybe way back a long time ago, what did you actually expect the Christian life to be like? Uh, did you become a follower of Jesus expecting that if I follow Jesus well, it will help my kids to grow up and give them well and to give them nice friends? Did you expect that following Jesus will help you make good decisions in life? Did you expect that following Jesus would mean that there's a permanent booking on Sunday morning in your diary? Uh, Did you expect that following Jesus would cost you a fortune? Did you expect that following Jesus might require time of you each day? Time to read and reflect on his word. Did you expect that following Jesus would mean that on the day of judgment, your eternity would be guaranteed by Jesus? Now, my gut feeling is here that most of us expected some of those things, but probably we didn't really know that all of these things would impact our lives if we took following Jesus seriously. Um, the reality is that many people I know of start following Jesus, but for various reasons they give up on Jesus because they didn't understand the cost of following. Uh, some people I know of gave up on Jesus because it meant they couldn't have sex with their boyfriend or their girlfriend, and so they drifted away. They didn't expect following Jesus to impact their sex lives. Uh, other people I know of who once followed Jesus... Uh, gave up on following Jesus because they didn't want to give money. They loved their money. And they figured that if I don't go to church, I can't give money, so I won't go to church. And they drifted away. Uh, Others I know of just like sleeping in on Sunday mornings. It was the only time they got to sleep in. The number of times that I've been told in ministry that that's my only day for sleeping in, I wish I had a dollar for every time. Uh, maybe uh, or there are people who've told me that they don't go to gather as God's people because they've got so much God stuff in their, in their week, so their work requires it almost. They didn't want God to dominate following their lives and so they gave up. For others it was sickness that disinterested them in God. For others it was career advancement. For others it was the need for their children to have rounded sporting opportunities. Uh, The list of reasons why I know people have given up on God is a really long list. Sometimes they've become lukewarm and sometimes they've just given up altogether. We know God doesn't like either. What did you expect the Christian life to be like? What are the costs that you are prepared to endure to follow God? Salvation's a free gift. We know that. It's plainly obvious, but... Are you aware there's a cost to endure? I think today's passage is pretty challenging. Um, It's challenging for us as individuals. But let me say, I think it's more challenging for us as a church, as we'll see. How about I pray? And if you prefer your churchianity not to impact your life too much, you ought to pray that God's Spirit speaks to your heart. I'm going to pray. Lord, we pray that your word will do its work in our hearts, in our lives, 
Lord, we don't want your word just to tickle our ears. Uh, we pray, Lord God, that it will encourage us and spur us on. But we also pray, Lord God, it will correct our wrong thinking and our wrong living so that we as a church, so that we as individuals might live for your glory in a world that doesn't know you. And we ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. Well, 1 Peter, you need to have the book of, the, the book of 1 Peter open. It is tempting to uh, just recap it from the beginning, but time won't let us do that. So let me be very brief. 1 Peter is God's word. It's not given to tickle our ears. It's reminding us of the great hope we have as God's people. But it's also saying that as God's people, you need to live for God. Uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 24, here's our hope. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Salvation is 100% a gift given to us by God, but it's given to us for a purpose. So how should we live as recipients of God's grace? How should we live as recipients of God's grace in a world that doesn't know or care to hoots about God? How should we live in as, as recipients of God's grace in a world that's actually hostile to God's people? Well, that's actually what the last few chapters have been speaking about, and I'm not going to recap them, but have a look at chapter 4. Because chapter 4 begins by giving us the idea that following God might involve suffering. It says, therefore, since Christ armed himself in his body, arm yourself with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Did you know you signed up for that? Let me tell you one Uh, Peter chapter 4 verse 1 has been taken out of context. Let me give you three wrong ideas that flow from this. Um, Sometimes Christians have read a verse like that and said, ah, suffering's good for the soul. It it imparts some moral benefit to you if you follow God. And so Christians used to go out and pray in the snow. Now, I don't know, we don't have that problem down here in Adelaide, but just as think of the same level of stupidity as going out and praying in the sun without your shirt on and no sunscreen on a hot summer's day and thinking that your sunburn will bring you closer to God. It will, but that's called cancer and it will kill you. It doesn't impart a moral benefit to your life. But Christians read this verse and thought, oh, I'll suffer, that'll be good for me. If you have that problem, come and see me later. Uh, the second problem that has risen from this verse is the idea that thinks that um, if I get the right attitude in my heart, then I'll no longer have any problem with sin. Now, my gut feeling is here that every one of us would say we struggle with sin, so therefore none of us have the right attitude. That's the wrong thinking that flows from this passage. But the passage is not saying that. The passage is telling us that you and I have had a break with sin. Sure, we struggle against it. It doesn't rule us. It doesn't have victory over us. It doesn't mean that the moment you get your thinking right, you never sin again. Okay? That's not what this verse means. And the third wrong way that people have read this verse is to think that all suffering's good. Um, in the previous sections of 1 Peter, it said that if you suffer for doing stupid things, you're stupid. That's sort of my paraphrase. It does, you might not find it in the original Greek. 
You are not being persecuted by God, by, uh, as a Christian when a policeman pulls you over for talking on your mobile phone, even if you're sharing the gospel with someone who's just phoned up to ask you, how can I become a Christian? You're just being disobedient to the law, pull over and speak to them. You see, if you're stupid and you suffer, you are stupid. So not all suffering is because... all suffering that you go through is good to be going through. So what is this passage saying? Well, the passage says we, you and I, should adopt the same attitude as Christ. When Jesus came to this world, he didn't come for a safari. It wasn't his holiday time. He was being obedient to his father and he knew that he would die on the cross. There was no surprises for God when Jesus died on the cross, he died, he came to die for your sin and for my sin. Remember 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. 1 Peter 3 verse 18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. It was no surprise that Jesus died on the cross. His suffering on the cross dealt with your sin and my sin. It paid its guilt, it's wiped away its debt. And yet, we as God's people will still suffer if we seek to obey him. Because Jesus said, if they persecute you, uh, sorry, persecute me, they will persecute you. So expect suffering. Now, you and I might have grown up in a world that's pseudo-Christian and we might have fallen into the trap of thinking we can be just like the world we grow up in and no one's going to give us a hard time. I think, thankfully, that's coming to an end. And so you and I need to prepare our thinking with the fact that one day, maybe today, and probably tomorrow, if we take it seriously, you and I will suffer for the sake of the gospel. So how are we going to live as followers of Jesus in the face of suffering? Well, this is what chapter 4 goes on to tell us. Let me tell you, tell you there's two options you can have. There's the where's Wally option when you're faced with persecution. This is what you should not be doing. Now, for you don't, if you don't know where the where's Wally cartoon stuff or puzzle stuff, there's where's Wally. There's a where's, there's, there's where's. Now, where's Wally? You've got to find him out there, but such a poor picture, you'll never find him anyhow. Now, what would Wally look like if you found him, just in case you didn't know? There's a picture of what Wally looks like. And you spend all your time trying to find Wally. Now, he's blending in and trying to hide, and that's not an option for us as God's people. Verse 3 says that's what we've put aside. Put aside your past life. To avoid suffering, don't go back to what you've come from. Don't live like the pagans. Don't try and blend in. And it seems as the society that the people from one Peter are talking to, one Peter is talking to, and us, society hasn't changed much. Uh, Two thousand years ago, Christians needed reminding that drunkenness, debauchery, orgies, lust, carousing and detestable idolatries, that is, worshipping the idols of your society, those things are the things we need to avoid. It's not a comprehensive list. It's just saying, this is what you used to do. Don't go back to it, no matter how much of a hard time your mates give you. Isn't it good to know that the, the first church, the first century church, was made up of sinners just like this? 
They weren't a bunch of nice people. They were a bunch of sinners, just like you. I don't know whether you'd really like that being said, but anyhow, I've said it. Because we are not saved because we're nice. Jesus has saved us because we're not nice. We need our sins forgiven. And they, like us, now follow Jesus. And because they, like us, follow Jesus, we need to live lives that are different. And Peter's saying here, of course your mates are going to be surprised when you don't do what they used to do. What you used to do with your mates down the road on a Friday night, on a Sunday afternoon, they're going to heap abuse on you as a result of it. In fact, the whole of society might not like you if you take following God seriously. Remember, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you, Jesus said. There can be great pressure from your mates to live like you once did before you followed Jesus. And there's also pressure from the desires of your own hearts, isn't it? Reckless wild living is lots of fun. Until you stop and you think about it. Maybe it's the morning after and you think, why did I do that again? Maybe it's when the debt collector arrives and you realise that the lavish lifestyle that you've been pushing for doesn't actually deliver. Maybe it's before the judgment seat of God. Uh, Libby, there's your little grandson. Maybe it's the judgment seat of God. And you realise that reckless and wild living is not as great as you thought it was. Peter reminds us that we don't make decisions in life based on what gives us the most pleasure in the next 10 minutes. Make decisions in life based on your eternity. An eternity that will involve you and I and everyone else standing before the judgment seat of God. That's what it's speaking about in verse 5. The, the way of the pagans, that is those who don't follow Jesus, that's all that name means, gives lots of short-term pleasure possibly, but before the judgment seat of God you'll be in real trouble. So in the face of persecution, don't go back there. Even if it means you need to suffer for Jesus now. Now you might not have lived the life of sex and drugs and rock and roll and you might feel that you don't have lots to go back to because you weren't there in the first place. You might be polite. But my bet is that you're also greedy. You might be socially acceptable. But my bet is you'll also be a gossiper or a slanderer or a selfish person. Or I think we all put our hands up before in the memory verse, didn't we? No one is righteous, not even one. You see, whatever our socially acceptable sins are, don't go back to them. Whatever your socially acceptable sins were, don't go back to them. To avoid persecution and suffering and your mates giving you a hard time. And if you've lived all of your life in church, a churchy culture, don't think this passage is not speaking to you either because it's even if you're not going back to it, you, you don't want to return to what everyone else is doing or you don't want to indulge in what everyone else is doing just to avoid persecution. Uh, following Jesus will require you to live a life that's different compared to those who don't follow Jesus. And that may well mean that you need to endure suffering 
and to avoid suffering, don't adopt the where's Wally thinking. Don't try and return to your empty way of life, no matter how pleasurable it looks. It will not be good for you on Judgment Day. Uh, Verse 6 is one of those verses that people seem to love taking out of context to support their weird thinking. Um, It seems to be saying that the gospel is preached to people and those people are now dead. It was probably preached to them when they're alive because dead people don't listen very well. But God, who made sure they heard the gospel before they died, is the one who will judge the living and the dead. So don't worry. He controls everything. Now, there's lots of other alternative ways to take that passage. I'm not going to go into them. I just think that's the most plausible one and just need to move on. Because I want to look at what, how we should be living. Option two. In the face of persecution, verse 2 says we should be living for the will of God. What does that mean? Well, actually, it's unpacked for us in verse 7 through to verse 11. When the world that you live in gives you a hard time for following Jesus, when it takes away your tax breaks, when it slanders you so that your job offer or job promotion is no longer on offer, when it makes it hard for you to live in obedience to God's word, what should you do? I think you'll find these things that are mentioned quite challenging. None of what mentioned gives you the idea that you need to get out there and defend your rights and freedoms. That's very challenging because we like doing that. Look at verse 7. You need to be alert and sober-minded so you can be prayerful. I wonder if prayer is the first thing you think of doing. Uh, I want to get people to pray so that I get my way. That's normally what my prayers are for, so that my life is made comfortable. I don't think that's what they were praying for there. Our monthly prayer meetings at this church here are the smallest gathering of our of our church. Did you know that? Maybe except the Bible studies where everyone's away. And I know many churches like it. I grew up in a church that once was said that it was the largest Anglican church in Australia and the only meeting that was cancelled permanently cancelled at that meeting because of a lack of continuous a continuous lack of uh, of people turning up was the prayer meeting bizarre isn't it you see i think that in the face of persecution we need to be people who pray together notice the word together not in isolation what are you praying about with other people Um, Are you praying that life might get nice for you? Or are you praying that God will help you live to his glory in the face of persecution? Uh, Most of us are not confident prayers. I can understand that. Prayers are out loud. Prayer with other people is a, a weird thing. But are you making an effort to meet with people who pray? Maybe so you can learn how to pray out loud. Uh, The first thing we are urged to do when facing persecution. I don't think it's necessarily put in order, but I think it's important in a way that we pick up that we should be praying. Not responding to the persecution, the stress that persecution brings with grog. Grog takes away stress, doesn't it? It's good. That's not the way we should respond as God's people. Not with anger. It's great to get angry at people who make our life hard, isn't it? It makes us feel better. But we should be responding with prayer. Anyhow, that's God's word, so better not pass over it if you don't like it. 
Verse 8 says, we should be people who love one another deeply. Now, you can imagine the early church, can't you? Made up of a whole pile of different people from different backgrounds. The most bizarre gathering of people in the world at the time, I reckon. None of them were perfect. All of them were struggling with sin from different cultures, different socioeconomic status, different family of origin experiences, and they gather together as God's people. It would be easy to get upset with each other as one group does it differently to another and gets up my nose. And God calls on the church that one Peter's written to and to us to be people who graciously show love to one another as we're prepared to see through each other's faults. Maybe it's our past faults, maybe it's our present faults. Uh, Which brother or sister in Christ has got up your nose recently? Of course, the problem could be yours, but let's pretend it's theirs. Was that an opportunity to show them love or to muddy their name and bring them down, humiliate them? You see, God calls on the church to be a sanctuary of people who love each other. And and love is costly, isn't it? God's love for us cost him enormously. And God's, us reflecting God's love to each other will cost us as we seek to live for him in a world that makes Christian living hard. Let's look at verse 9. Uh, verse 9 calls on us to be people who show each other hospitality in the face of persecution. Uh, facing persecution is actually something we're to do together. Once you know one of your brothers and sisters in Christ is having a hard time, the aim is not to isolate them. It's to care for them, provide for them. Maybe hospitality involves provision of food. You will hope it doesn't if I'm the only one cooking. But hospitality could provide, could be the provision of, of, of accommodation, couldn't it? You can borrow my tent. It could be the provision of relational support. See, that sort of hospitality, you can't just turn on when persecution arises. That sort of hospitality has to be the sort of hospitality that a church takes as normal. I told you it was a challenging passage for us as a church. You can't just start loving people in tough times. You've got to have been loving them in the good times as well. You see, the early church showed each other hospitality right from the start. It was part of them deepening their friendships and relationships with each other, their friendship in Christ. I think one thing we need to work on is getting to know each other deeply so we can love each other deeply. You will not love people you don't know. As I said before, lots of different people in the early church, and they're slaves and free, rich and poor, people from different cultures, different nations different religious practices and they regularly ate together and they got to know each other and they got to know each other's names and they cared for each other and then when persecution broke out they just kept doing that 
So how are we going? How are you going at being hospitable to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you know each other's names? That's a bit of a tough question, isn't it? I get my own kids' names wrong. At least I know them. I just can't apply them to the right person. I'm not talking about hospitality being a 10-course meal. Maybe it's just a cup and a biscuit. Good start, wouldn't it? It'll take your time, but guess what? God expects being a follower of him in a church family to take our time. It's part of being a Christian family. And yes, you can grumble. You can grumble that you weren't invited over the same to the same meeting that others were invited over. And when you got invited, it was just bread and water. Suck it up, princess. The reality is it's not about what you're eating. It's about deepening that friendship, that relationship in Christ together. See, bread and water is not too bad if you get to know your brothers and sisters in Christ, is it? Verse 10. I think, if possible, it even takes our relationship together as a church even closer. Because it calls on us to use the gifts God's given us to serve each other as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Notice one thing here. If you're a Christian, you have been given gifts. And those gifts are not for you to use as you want for yourself. They are used for God's glory as you care for others, including those in the church. All too often often it is easy for us to use our gifts for ourselves. This passage sort of puts that thinking, turns it on its head. Now how are you stewarding the gifts God's given you? That is, how are you using them, your God-given gifts, to serve others? You'll be pleased to know if you're feeling a bit squirmy in your seat, verse 11 is right near the end. Uh, Verse 11 addresses the way we are to speak to each other and the way we are to serve each other. Uh, When persecution comes, it can be easy for us to, um, in stress, not to speak nicely to each other. Yet it seems to give you the idea, verse 11, that we should be speaking God's word to each other, not our own. Um, I don't think it's calling on us to walk around quoting scripture memory verses until we get lollies. Sorry about that. Now, it is good to know Scripture and to quote them. But I think what it's saying is bigger than that. It's calling us to be people who are guided and directed by God's Word as it's clearly spoken and taught among us. To be people who are guided and directed by God's Word as it's clearly taught and spoken among you. Verse 11 also says you should serve one another with the strength God provides. It's easy to serve someone who feels obligated to serve me back. And yet this passage is saying that in the church family, we should be prepared to serve one another with the strength God provides, not with whatever we get back from it. You don't simply serve people who turn around and serve you back. Serve people who can give nothing in return. And do it with the strength that comes from God. Now I reckon this is a pretty challenging section of the Bible. There are a few of them. And so it's not uncommon for us to come across challenging sections of the Bible. But I think this passage challenges how we go about doing church. Because we often see church as being something between us and God. 
And this passage reminds us it's also with each other. Our Christianity is not just us and God, it's with our church family as well. You see, as a church, we are a bunch of people who are saved by God's grace. We have an inheritance that's won for us. That's good news. And as we live together, we should be prayerful. Maybe we're living in the face of persecution in its various forms. We should be loving one another and looking through each other's sins rather than using them as an opportunity to bring them down. We should be people who offer hospitality to one another where we actually need to be people who know each other and offer hospitality to one another, know each other's names and family loves and struggles and conversion. Do you know how each of, each of you were converted? What a great conversation. What brought you to become a follower of Jesus? And we should know the way that we can serve each other using the gifts that God's given us and the strength that God provides for us. So we should be people who are shaped by God's word in our thinking and our loving and our living. And the reason we should be doing that, doing this, it says in verse 11, is because we want to be people who see that God's name is praised and glorified. That's our motivation. We want to be people who resist the struggles that persecution brings because we want to see God's name glorified in his world. And the good news is in all of this, if this is a bit overwhelming, then just take a step back and look at Jesus. He has set the example. And so when someone gives you a hard time, don't respond with fear. Respond by loving them, because Jesus loved the people who put him to death. Let us pray for God to strengthen us, to live in face of an increased hostility in a way which brings him glory. How about I pray? Our Lord and our God, we pray that in your graciousness we will live as your people in a way which brings you glory. And when tough times come, when persecution ramps up, we will continue to live to your praise and glory as we love one another and love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Help us to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they will see our good works and glorify God on the day that he visits us. We ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.